0: Hi, my name is Lloyd Sarbutz, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, we are listening to Lars Iyer and John Day discuss Lars's recent novel My Vey, which was recorded live in the bookshop in September 2023. My Vey is the third in a loose trilogy of novels, where significant continental thinkers are brought into contemporary academic scenarios that skewer academia and the parochial ways of British life. Bordering on the unruly and brimming with satire, Lars's novels are the work of a distinctive voice in British literature. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Well, welcome everyone on this sweltering September night, slightly worryingly sweltering September night. I'll do a quick intro, but I'm sure we're all familiar with Lars and his oeuvre, and today we'll talk a bit, Lars will read a bit, quite a lot I hope. Um, I'll ask some questions and then we can have a kind of general chat about his work, about the book. Lars, I've been a bit big fan of for many years now, I think like many of us, I probably first encountered his work in his blog, which became the trilogy he wrote, the first trilogy, fictional trilogy he wrote, um, Spurious, Dogma and Exodus. When was that? Twenty thirteen to twenty eleven to yeah, twenty thirteen. Yeah, and he's then announced himself and has become since I think one of the most interesting and original and 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 strange, and I mean that in a in a very positive <laughs> sense. Novelist writing in English today. He also has a a pre-history as an academic philosopher. Has written two books on Blanchot. And most recently, he's written a a kind of loose trilogy. Do you think of them as a trilogy? I do. Yeah, I do do too. I'm glad to hear that. Wittgenstein Jr., Nietzsche and the Burbs, and um, the book we're discussing today, My Ve. The pun is um, intentional, of course. And they're kind of philosophical novels in various ways. Um, And I kind of wanted to ask, before asking you to read, Lars, we'll get to the reading very shortly, but I've just used that phrase, philosophical novel, and I wonder if it's appropriate or accurate or what you think of it. Because, of course, it could be interpreted in a number of ways. It's a kind of imperfect description of your work. Like, Could it mean a novel that is philosophical, that does philosophical work? Is it a novel that asks philosophical questions? Or is it a novel that takes as its theme, as many of, your, of the trilogy do, and indeed the spurious trilogy too, novel about what it means to do philosophy in a kind of academic Setting. So do you think there is such a thing as a philosophical novel? And is that what you're writing?
2: Well, thanks, John. Now, what is philosophy all about? Once upon a time, ancient Greece, ancient India, ancient China, and elsewhere in the world. To be a philosopher was to embody, was to live a certain view of the world. It wasn't about writing. It wasn't about thinking. It was about living. So you embodied a philosophical position by the way in which you lived. So That's how it, well, that's how it once was. And that's what fascinates me. Once upon a time, philosophy was about a way of life. And If you were a Stoic, say in ancient Greece, if you were a Cynic, that brought with it a commitment to a lifestyle. So for example, if you were a Cynic, it meant you had no property, would not seek to own anything, would do very little, other than like Diogenes, the great Cynic, hang around in the public square, begging a bit, insulting people, <laughs> masturbating in public, which, which he did. Diogenes was the exact double of Plato. Plato, the great, the great foundational philosophers here in the West, and Diogenes, like like um, like Plato, was very handsome, extraordinary good-looking man, at a time where these things counted. But Diogenes was not a man who was uh, sober or continent. Rather, as a cynic, he was the very opposite. So there he was in the public square, doing what he shouldn't do, doing what he should never do. That, for him, was an embodiment of his philosophy. Because Diogenes' philosophy was a refusal of the world, a refusal of the comforts of the world, a refusal of the blandishments of the world. Alexander the Great, who was, of course, Aristotle's pupil, as Aristotle was um, Plato's pupil, Aristotle went to Diogenes and said to him one day, I am the ruler of most of the world, or most of the known world back in those days. So I am the ruler of most of the known world. I, Alexander, what can I give you, O Diogenes? Everyone spoke in the vocative in Greek, so it's always, oh, <laughs> what can I give you, O oh, Socrates, oh, 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 um, oh, D'Arginis. And Diogenes said simply, get out of my son. <laughs> there he was in the public square, Dogenes fami- famously lived in a barrel, he had a barrel with him, he had his barrel, his trusty, reliable <laughs> barrel, where he slept. And all he asked for... A bijou a,
1: tiny a, home, it would a, be, in a no. be
2: it would be perfect in London, wouldn't it? <laughs> it <possibly> would <laughs> half a million in London. So uh, Diogenes you know, was rolling his barrel to and fro. He's well known for this, rolling his barrel, masturbating in the public square, looking a lot like Plato. The point is that being a philosopher was a, was a commitment to a lifestyle, a way of living. And in my novels, in, the, in these last three novels that I've written, it's about philosophers who come into the midst of a, of a sundry group, of a group of um, heterogeneous individuals, outcasts, misfits, oddities... A philosopher comes into their midst, and this philosopher is someone who embodies, who lives, who incarnates a way of living. And that's what these oddballs and misfits envy. They, too, want to live in a certain way. So to the extent that these novels dramatise the appeal of a way of life, of a way of living, or being part of a philosophical school, I would call them philosophical.
1: And of that, I mean, thank you for that. Wonderful history of Western philosophy, really. <laughs> you know, who needs Russell? Um, what What was it that attracted? I said at the beginning, and as I'm sure many people here will know, you were an academic philosopher for many mm-hmm. years. Your Your formal academic training was in philosophy, and you still write, not just you know the fiction that you write, but you know you, you grapple with these ideas in your in your working life. What What was it about that melange of of of, of activities? I mean, was it living in a barrel? Was it masturbating in public? Or what, it's just the what, idea, the commitment of, um, to the life. The idea
2: of a way of life mm. of living in some way. How do we live in accordance with our thought? Or rather, how do we think in accordance with our lives? What's the relationship between thought and life? Thought, philosophical thought, is supposed to be grounded in a life. A life is supposed to be grounded in a thought. So that relationship between thinking and living, what does that mean in our times, in these times? There are so many lifestyles available to us, so many different ways of living. How do we pick one? How do we become sure this is a lifestyle that we can adopt? One of the words I, I use a lot in this novel is disaster. Mm. Etymologically, what disaster means is we've lost the stars, the stars have fallen. Once upon a time in philosophy, the order and regularity of the stars um, suggested what the Greeks knew as a cosmos. And a cosmos is an ordered, structured universe. And wouldn't it be wonderful to think of a universe that is ordered and structured? Wouldn't it be wonderful to tr- try and live in accordance with the rules of the universe, as the ancient Stoics did? So, ancient Stoic philosophers. They call themselves cosmopolitans. That's where the word comes from. Cosmopolitans, from the word cosmos and polis. So cosmos, they were citizens of the cosmos. The cosmos was law-based, rule-based, orderly. Like the stars themselves, you could rely upon it. There are philosophers and there are writers, literary writers too who argue that our time is a time of disaster. The stars have fallen. What does that mean? It means we don't have a star to guide us. We don't have a fixed order and pattern in in the sky to turn to. So for philosophers who think this is the time of the disaster, it means there is no law-bound, rule-bound structure by which to live. So how then do we live? How do we pick a particular lifestyle? Should we be Buddhists? Should we be Stoics? What should we be? And that question becomes a question which, um, in many philosophical traditions, moves to the heart of philosophical reflection. What should we be at the time in which co- the cosmos is no longer given? In which disaster seems to be seems to hold sway, mm.
1: and th- and the group of, of of PhD students that this novel focuses on, of um, the other the other novels in the trilogy are focused on undergraduates at Cambridge who mm. suddenly get um, confronted mm. with uh, Nietzsche comes and, and 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 or someone they call Nietzsche comes and teaches them, and um, the uh, the the second book in the in, in in the trilogy sorry the first book is Wittgenstein comes mm. and teaches them. the second book is is uh, is high school students, uh, a level students, really, isn't it? Um, That's right. Uh, in the suburbs, um, grappling with these questions of how to live, mm-hmm. and obviously in this novel, we we have Simone Vay is the is the is the kind of philosophical big hitter, and she uh, is part of a community of PhD researchers at a disaster studies department mm-hmm. in a in a kind of slightly second rate university mm-hmm. in Manchester, um, <laughs> which you're slightly cynical about at times. It seems, or at least the novel is, in terms of you, you describe it as a branding exercise at, at one point a, a kind of desperate attempt for a flailing continental philosophical tradition to give itself legitimacy in in, in the university and a lot of this novel is I think out of the, the the recent trilogy most directly engaged with what academic philosophy looks like today what it feels like to study philosophy in the university what people who wish to be philosophers aspire to that lifestyle but it's 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 written in this in, in, in a kind of voice that will be familiar to, to, to all of you who have read Lars Iyer's novels, of the kind of commune. The, the, there is a single narrator, and we'll speak about him momentar- in a moment, I'm sure. But what is it about that, that kind of chorus of voices? That, what does that allow you to do? I was struck by how it feels almost like a kind of stream of consciousness novel, but with many different consciousnesses contributing. It reminded me a lot of Virginia Woolf's The Waves, or novels like that, which are kind of mm. c- cumulative um, novels of voice. But, yeah, what is it about those kinds of communities of, of um, adherence to a dream that so, so attracts you?
2: I like this idea very much, the idea of, a, of, a, of, of these voices working together. I never thought of the connection with the waves. That's a, that's a, a very interesting connection to make. The waves by Virginia Woolf, as you all know, is, is high seriousness, mm. as so much of Virginia Woolf is. We live in a time in which, at least for me, high seriousness is impossible. I can't take myself quite seriously. Uh, I can't take myself seriously when I'm being serious. My seriousness with a capital S is something which I find unconvincing. I find it a pose. Undermining this sense of seriousness is a sense of imposture. Who am I to be serious? What kind of person am I to embody seriousness? What does it mean for me to be seriousness? And here again, we have this idea of the disaster. What, 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 what belongs to the disaster is the notion that we do not. F- um, we do not we, can't, we don't have that right to seriousness. Because we don't, have, we, don't, we, we don't know how to live, we don't have a cosmos in which to live, because we're not co- cosmopolitans in that sense. Virtually any position we take up feels like an imposture, no matter how noble that position is, no matter how just that position is, no matter how ethically we, f- we feel bound to it. There's also a sense of being, well, not quite there. There's a sense in which this is not the role that you can inhabit. And my students, as you say, John, they come, they, 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 they won scholarships at a university called All Saints in Manchester. And my students do not feel an embeddedness within their philosophical tradition. They don't feel at home in any tradition. At the same time, they love philosophy. They love thought. They feel an ecstasy about thought. They feel that that's because, it's precisely because, they come from nowhere, and precisely because these students are not the sort whose parents or um, forebears went to university, read these kinds of books. Mm. My students are working-class students, and they turn to European philosophy because it gives them a sense of belonging and home, even though they know that, thems- that they themselves are not really at home in the world. There's a moment in the novel where they say to a middle-class student who's straight into their midst, and my working-class students say to the middle-class students, you will never love these philosophy books as we love them. Mm. Now, we can't really read them. We can't read them in the original language, as you can. We're talking to a middle-class student called Gita. Um, you, can't, you, know, you read them in French. You can read them in German, no problem. We can't. We can't even follow the arguments of them particularly. We don't really understand what's going on in these books. <laughs> We're poorly educated. But we revere these books. We love them as you will never love them, Gita, as they say to Gita. You will never understand our love for these thinkers. And that's what uh, my philosophers want, my PhD student philosophers. They want a lifestyle. They want to inhabit a life. They want to live this life of philosophy, which at the same time for them is utterly impossible.
1: Mm. Was that, I mean, without being too sort of reductively biographical, was that your own experience discovering philosophy? This, well, this secret world that could change you? That could.
2: My experience is different because I, I actually... Uh, come from an analytic philosophy background. Now, there's a division in philosophy in the UK. There are several divisions, but we'll, we'll f- focus on this one. Analytic philosophy is British and American. and It comes out of um, various advances in logic, which occurred in the cusp, really, of the 20th century. So I was educated in, in analytic philosophy in a very hard analytic philosophy department. You know, tough-minded. You know, <laughs> quite scary. They'd uh,
1: have no time for disaster studies.
2: no. Exactly. So I come from that background. That that background I've internalised. It's part of me. It's a background which very much suits, I don't don't, don't know if I can speak for everyone here, but it suits a certain Britishness, which which is very much part of me. Where all these high fluting continental philosophy ideas are a lot of nonsense, Mm. we begin philosophy all over again in plain English. In plain English, we'll write very clearly for our audience and we'll debate things in a room together. and We'll debate stuff and we'll work things out, not like all these continental types, not like all these French and German types.
1: And it's often founded on the room, isn't it? If you read Moore and Russell, yeah. it's the, the starting point of ep- epistemological inquiry is always, I sit at my desk and I wrap my pipe yes. against it, and how do I know that exactly. it's really there? It's like this, this is common sense. Real? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> my <laughs> servant just came in and brought me a cup of tea. And <laughs> put it on my desk. But how
1: could I know that they have it in a life at all?
2: <laughs> how can I know if my servant is a real person? <laughs> so you can see I'm, I'm taking the mickey out of all this stuff. There's a class element to all this. Uh, I, I come from that background of um, analytic philosophy, to me, to transfer over to continental philosophy was a terrible, terrible wrench. <laughs> a novel, it's the novel is dramatized. The novel is dramatized. So, um, my, my, my philosophy department at All Saints in, the, in this novel is a novel of what we call continental philosophy, European philosophy, which is much more what we normally associate with philosophy questions of meaning, questions of value, questions about what it's all about, questions in general, questioning in general, is something that you do. That's why I moved, I moved to that tradition. But yet, in me, and it's a very strong part of me, in fact, it's largely me, is the analytic philosopher who prizes clarity above all else. Well, I went to the most continental of continental thinkers, Maurice Blanchot, <laughs> who is he is so difficult and so obscure, and yet his work is written so beautifully and so deductively, you read it and you think what was that about? I've been working on Blanchet for 30 years or so. I read, I think, what was that about even now? And that's part of the novel. It's part of the fun of the novel. These two different traditions of thought are brought together. They, 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 they clash, as they clash in me as well. So on the one hand, I'm a very British person. I love science. I love the exactitude of logic and science. I'm a very scientific person, mentally. And yet, what I love I love it. It's a secret love, an undeclared love. I, I, I love to I can't really admit to myself what I love is the continental stuff, <laughs> which I still feel like reading underneath the duvet. It feels <laughs> naughty. It feels transgressive. It feels like I'm, I'm betraying something. Mm. Once upon a time when I was when I was at Manchester University, I was supposed to be someone who who would be doing a PhD in analytic philosophy. And my teachers felt terribly betrayed when I when I moved to the university up the road and did continental philosophy one thing that one thing one person said to me was but the french don't wash <laughs> <laughs> which is 1992 <laughs> people spoke that way then <laughs> but the french don't wash how can we study their philosophy so for me you know it, it was a betrayal and that's, that's how people felt in analytic philosophy cuz i was supposed to be an analytic philosophy person and i went up the, I went up the road and the other thing about you know UK, we divide universities still into new and old universities, and Manchester was a very respectable university, and still is, but I went to a former poly, a new university, and this, my teachers, could not get over, and this is again, it's dramatised in the novel, in the novel you have Victoria University, and you have All Saints University, for legal reasons I have to say, (laughs) they're not at all based on anything (laughs) in Manchester, they're totally fictional, but that division is is, is nonetheless...
1: There. Mm. While you were speaking, I mean, loads of questions emerged from that for me, but one thing that seems to be romanticised in a, in a positive way, and, and in fact very important to you in, in, in all these novels, is that, that possibility of self-fashioning in a political mm. sense, in a social sense, um, in terms of gender and sexual identity in mm. this novel, of course, too, which we, we will get to in a moment. Mm. But it struck me, as you were speaking, that the divide you make between continental and analytical philosophy, of course, can be mapped onto literature and fiction in some intriguing ways in the sense that the continent the, sorry the analytical tradition kind of emerges with really high modernism and, and 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 in some cases in the case of wolf for instance the connections are very close she was reading moore and russell you know while she was writing these novels but your novels occupy this kind of interesting hinterland between what we might think of as the the conservative or traditional campus novel in the anglo-american tradition which is comic which is high fast but is social fast and is about yeah not taking seriously the intellectual ideas. Really, If you think of Lucky Jim or, you know, these novels in which it's all despair and depression, but not necessarily, there's, there's no kind of hope for the ideas underpinning it, whereas you have a kind of deep love for, as we've just heard, for, 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 for the philosophers you're talking about, and your characters have that too, right, there Absolutely. Is there, there's hope there for them. I've in never read a Tampa's comment. novel, I, n- <laughs> I never
2: could. I find them unbearable. I find them unbearable because they, as you, as you rightly say, John, they don't, t- they don't take the ideas seriously. It's all frippery for them. It's all nonsense. It's part of the same attitude. It's a get. setting
1: or a background, but it's about yeah, social. I mean, anyway. so
2: this for me is, is abysmal. So my stuff, my, my fiction, it's all comic, right? So it's all supposed to be fun. And you don't need to have a background in this, in this thought to read it. It's all born out of a very you know, a real love for this material. You know, I love this work that I, that I read. I love this philosophy. Even now I love it. I love it more than ever. Mm. I was reading uh, Jacob Taube as a philosopher, um, wonderful contemporary philosopher, well, in philosophy, we say contemporary. <laughs> we, mean, we mean post-World War II. <laughs> in <laughs> literature, you mean contemporary means someone's alive now. Jacob, Jacob Tavis died a long time ago, but that's contemporary for us. He died in the 80s. That's he's, really still, he's
1: still being argued about. Though. He's still being
2: argued about. So Jacob Tabez, I was reading his work, I had to put it aside because my heart was beating too fast. I think I've got to control myself here. This is, this is you know, I'm going to do, do myself damage. So these philosophers, are, I find them absolutely exhilarating. So exciting. So fascinating, and to spend a life working on their thought is something I feel unworthy of. Mm. You know, some say, I, I don't count myself as a Blanchot scholar at all. There are people who spent 30 years, 40 years working on his writing, and they're the only now writing, publishing books, and I have the utmost respect for these people. So all my work is, is, is born out of a enormous respect for these European traditions of thought. You know, I have the, I have a, the utmost reverence for these thinkers. Um, many of these people weren't at universities. They, 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 made, they lived hand-to-mouth writing book reviews. They, they lived very tough lives. So for me, I am, like my characters, in awe of these thinkers, even though I lack many of the real skills you need <laughs> to read them. <laughs> so, you know, I'm someone who... Um, I, I, I'll, I'll frame this in this way. There's a great poet, Hülderlin, Friedrich Hülderlin, one of the great poets of the German tradition. And is a translator of ancient Greek... He he translated stuff into into the German of his time. He tried to make ancient Greeks speak in in German of of his period. And what um, Hullin wrote in a famous letter to his friend Berlendorf, what he wrote was, the Greeks had the fire from heaven. The Greeks had the fire from heaven. What we Germans have, he said, is a clarity of representation. In other words, what the Germans were able to do was to translate this Greek fire into something precise, into something which has um, limits, into something which is partitioned in a particular way, which has a structure. So the Greeks were the fire, and the Germans were the mediator who turned the fire into something systematic, concrete, and clear. So that was the division between the Greeks and the Germans. And my characters, what they hope for, is they can translate this fire into a crisp, clean, modern English.
1: That's my hope too. Mm,
2: mm. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. So for me, as someone who's schooled in analytic philosophy, I prize cons- I I I, preso- I prize clarity, but I always feel terribly terribly guilty in my philosophical writing. I don't reach it. It's more than a, it's more than just um, guilt. It's, it's almost masochistic. I, I feel I feel ashamed of myself. I haven't been clear enough. I haven't been clear enough. That's what analytic philosophy does to you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> But uniting those two strands, I think, is is as you dramatise it in mm. these characters' experiences, is, is is so powerful and also very un-English, actually. I think it does it well, you know, as you're speaking; it makes mm. me that's it's the taking seriously of those things mm. that, that that gives your work its distinctness, perhaps. Maybe now's the time that you could oh give yes. us a blast of its distinctness. Sure, um, for those yes. of you who haven't read the novel, we've kind of contextualised it a bit, but it'd be great to hear from it.
2: Okay. Well, my eyesight's declining, so <laughs> <I hope laughs> if I you, uh, yeah. If you can see what you're reading. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, I wanted to convey here a sense of what it was to do a PhD. And for me, the postgraduate is always an admirable figure. Uh, and the PhD student in particular,
1: where what you're doing when you're writing a PhD, you're not
2: sure what, what, what your destination is. You're not sure where it is your studies are taking you. You're not sure if you're equipped to do it. So being a PhD student is something which is um, a struggle. A struggle with your sense of what you're, able, what you're capable of struggle with very difficult texts that take a lot of time to read. A struggle with the whole culture. As we're saying, John, you know, it doesn't fit with English, perhaps British culture, perhaps UK culture. Uh, Taking the idea seriously is itself something really hard to do. You can't take yourself seriously doing it. it, it, it Especially in the
1: political climate the last, well, you know, 30 years.
2: Yes, absolutely. The political climate, the cultural climate, um, all these things. So let me find um, some paragraphs in my novel here. Now, my students, um, my PhD students have recruited into their midst a guy who's only known as Business Studies guy. So he's Business Studies guy, right? That's all he's known as. That's, he doesn't get a proper name until later. Mm. He gets a name later from the novel, and a good name. It's actually quite a funny name, if I say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of, one of you walk along the road, you have an idea, and you start laughing, and that was, that was what happened to Business Studies guy. I mean, he gets his name. He gets two different names, actually. Anyway. Okay. The humanities PhD student needs a cafe, business studies guy. The humanities PhD students need to get out of the house to escape the study bedroom. Life's not just you and a laptop. That's what the humanities PhD student should remember. You need a reminder of the wider life, a sense that you're not alone. So here we are, business studies guy. Humanities PhD students one and all. Owls only customers as always. The place to ourselves before the lunchtime rush. There never is a lunchtime rush. The humanities PhD student likes to moan about the futility of study, business studies guy. About the pointlessness of life. There's a whole art of lamentation which only the humanities PhD student has mastered. The humanities PhD student is a virtuoso of the complaint. Bringing changes on our misery is what saves us from misery, business studies guy. It's good to be good at something, even if it's complaining that we're good for nothing. Later, walking Chalton. Imagine being Victoria PhD students, real PhD students, business studies guy where it's not a struggle just to be able to write, just to get vaguely grammatical words down on a page. Imagine being able to write proper proper prose. Not, Not a bunch of half sentences and jumbled notes, business studies guy. Imagine sitting at our laptops and writing, business studies guy. Tapping away without porn breaks every half hour, without masturbation breaks without tea and biscuits breaks, without staring into air breaks, without going for a wonder breaks, and writing, actually writing, Business Studies Guy, writing tumbling over itself, out of itself, writing that knows only its own momentum, its urgency, its desire to go somewhere. The happiness of writing, Business Studies Guy of writing discovering itself following after itself writing for writing because of writing writing drawn back into its own birth its own origin that springs forth from its spring and reading actually reading business studies guy reading the books that will keep us steady book ballasts that hold us down that stop us from being becoming flippity gibbets whole oeuvre like ship's anchors Oh, those hundreds of pages, business studies guy. Oh, those heavy, heavy books. Months of work. Months to even approach them. Armed with the right secondary texts. With the appropriate introductions, it's a risk. It's an expedition. You might never be seen again. They'll have to send out search parties. You'll be hopelessly lost in the pages of the Grundrisse, business studies guy. You'll have been last seen on Chapter 36 of The Logical Investigations. There'll have been vultures sighted over you two-thirds of your way through the science of logic. Later, walking. There are dangers in the afternoon, Business Studies guy. There's such a thing as having too much time. It's like everything is open too wide, like the sky's too empty. Don't stare into its depths, Business Studies guy. Don't look directly at the abyss. The humanities PhD student fears the afternoon and is right to. You've heard of night terrors, business studies guy. Well, these are afternoon terrors. We're not made to live in this kind of openness. We're not made to float free. It's as though we'd each become as vast as the universe, business studies guy. Vaster as if our atoms were scattered everywhere. There's too much time. Haven't we always said that? Our days are open, infinitely so. They reach, they implore, they ask. It's like they're looking for something. Dead days when nothing's to be done. Vague afternoons when nothing's to be written. Shells of days, failure days, cancelled days with nothing so nothing reaped. Time sunk to its knees, time slumped, time forlorn, time you cannot reach, cannot inhabit. Amnesiac time that forgets itself, forgets you. Blurred time, blows to the head time, come downs, crashes, awful slumps. Time's question. That's what we know, business studies guy. Times search for eternity, times waiting, until what? Until the end of time, evening, ruin bar. Another day gone, business studies guy. Another day gone, hopes thwarted, hopes dashed, yet again. Picklebacks at last, business studies guy to soothe our troubled brains, to rouse us from our deathbeds. We'll ride the pickleback waves and forget our troubles. We need to be helped to cross the threshold, business studies guy. We need something to lift us from our melancholy, from the ruin of our efforts. We've grown old with the day. We had dreams, ambitions in the morning. We were idealists in the morning. We'd forgotten our stupidity in the morning. But now? We need to know that there's life after our botched and ruined day, Business Studies Guide. That we won't plunge down on the day's Titanic. We need consolation for what we did not do, for thoughts we did not think, for passages unwritten. We're tired of our brains, our so-called brains, tired of thought and the effort to think, our so-called thinking, tired of ourselves, of our solo efforts, our so-called efforts. Misery wants company. We need to be with others who understand our situation, who have known the same agonies, the same disappointments. What solitude we've known. What loneliness. Just us and our so-called work all day, all afternoon. Just us alone with our laptops. We need the hubbub of ruin bar around us business studies guy. We need conviviality, human company. So let's drink, let's fill ourselves with beer, let's slam down a pickleback at the bar before we even sit down. This is our milieu, the bar early evening, business studies guy. Before we get incoherent, this is where we're at our best, the alcohol beginning to enliven us to warm up our blood. When we're finding our second wind, when we're lifted from exhaustion, by what miracle? When despair can bloom, you'll hear exhilarated talk, business studies guy. You'll hear arrant fantasy. You'll hear drunken clarity, sense in nonsense, chaos in disorder. Drunken logic, there'll be a lot of that. Drunken thought, great ideas that reveal themselves in drunkenness and are forgotten straight away. What did we speak about, we'll wonder afterwards. What did we say? But it's not for us to remember. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. That brought back very traumatic memories <laughs> for me, um, and maybe, maybe many of us present. of the. Was that, was that your experience? Was that, was that your PhD?
2: I was actually in Manchester last week for the first time in about 20 years. I was walking my old neighbourhood. For the first time since I left it, seven, you know, I lived there for seven years. I was walking the very streets I used to walk in the afternoon. So it, it's particularly vivid for me. Yeah. It's, that, it's that thing, you know, you, in the morning you have a sense of, okay, I, I can write this, I can do things. You've had your espresso from the local cafes in Manchester. You're full of espresso confidence. The afternoon, the caffeine leaves your bloodstream and yeah. you're, you're abandoned to the day. <laughs> so I used to wander Chalton. I used to do a great circuit of Chalton, which I reenacted last week. I was delighted, actually, because the same record shop was open. I'd go to the record shop every single day. I didn't have any money. I don't know why I was in there. But I used to look through the LP, look for the CDs. I went, I went to that, pl- I went over the bridge in Alton, and there it was—the same record shop, the same guy working in there. It was wonderful to see him actually. And I went through the records. I went through the CDs. This time, I actually had money a bit to spend. A bit of, a bit of money, <laughs> at least. Not I wasn't totally broke as usual. So yes, that was that's how it was for me. Yeah. And, th- and the that th- weird the
1: isolation th- and camaraderie of it. That is captured so well the other people
2: yeah there are other people who are doing the phds as well i I actually stayed the night with a friend of mine who's doing a phd at the same time and it is a very very difficult thing to do a phd in philosophy you know it really is just really hard and you know he had a family at the time he had two children while doing his phd it took him about eight years to finish it i mean this stuff is is just so difficult and part of it is motivation part of it is just trying to get on with it it's like any writing task so the afternoon for me really was a time of, of um, melancholy, of losing a sense of who it is we, you are. You lose your limits. You, loo- you lose a sense of um, what it is you are. So it, w- it was that sense of becoming infinitely porous to the entire universe. You, your atoms were spread everywhere. You weren't anyone in particular. You were no one. You were the man or the woman without qualities. Mm. So that's for me how it was. It's that caffeine rise and the caffeine slump and the evening – Alcohol <laughs> taking you right back up again, and then of course the hangover taking you down again. So it's that rhythm, that rhythm of life, mm. which I think is very much characteristic of um, anyone, who does, anyone who anyone anyone who writes. Mm. I think particularly doing a PhD when you have a scholarship. And think of the guilt. You know, I, I was working in high tech. I was working in, in IT. I was working at Hewlett Packard. I, I won this scholarship, so you feel terribly guilty. You've got all this time, and what are you doing with it? So you despise yourself as well, which doesn't help. Doesn't help matters.
1: It's captured brilliantly. I am going to um, throw the throw the questions over to you lot very soon. And uh, there's a couple of things I still wanted to ask, though, if I may, before we get to that stage, because um, we haven't really to- spoken much about the, the sort of central enigmatic character mm. in this novel. And of course, as as, as we've heard, um, she she takes her place in a in a trilogy in which these kind of iconic philosophers are embodied by eccentrics, by wanderers, by self fashioned people within your novels. And, and Simone Weil, the, the, the what did they used to say about Chaucer? the biological entity as it mm. were she, i mean she was a kind of fascinating mm. uh, in terms of the the kind of philosophy you've been describing to us and the and, and the idea of living a life guided by ideals and ideas um maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, about about her and about how mm-hmm. your version version of her manifests those ideas in this book because she's such a fascinating character she's a, she's mm-hmm. a very
2: a fascinating a fascinating woman her life is itself extremely interesting She's born in 1909, died in 1943, at the age of 34, she died very young. A woman of extraordinary brilliance from a family of, um, of, of very brilliant people. Her brother was a very famous mathematician. Simone Weil is, um, I mean, I, I, it's hard to talk about these things without, without tears welling up, because a lot of her work was written uh, during the Nazi period. And it was written while she was working in London as a member of the resistance, and she was, she was doing clerical work, office work. And what she would do in the evenings is write her own stuff. And in particular, if you read Simone Weil's last journals, they're unbelievably moving. They're very beautiful.
1: And they were very much about that question of what should a world look like? What should s- they were kind of how, utopian yeah. in the best how, sense. How, how can we, we reconstruct? Remake the world? Yeah, yeah.
2: How should we remake the world? And there, there's, there's sections in her last notebooks, translations from the Sanskrit. Mathemati- mathem- uh, there's mathematics in there. There's the, the articulation of a religious philosophy, which is profound and brilliant. It's all, it's all in the notes, and she wrote these notes. Look at her handwriting. It's beautiful. No crossings out. No crossings out. She, she, she wrote... She's wrote um, no
1: coffee slump for her.
2: Nothing, nothing. Just this, this mind that she had, this keenness of mind, this strength of mind. It's, it's, it's awe, literally awe-inspiring. To read to Monvay is like seeing a great cathedral think, how is it possible Mm. that a human being could write those things? And in the time in which she wrote them, with such political pressure, with such, in in Europe, such terrible things happening, and yet she was writing this in the last nine months. She wrote so much of her religious philosophy in particular. So for me, I'm always in just absolute awe. Now, one of the temptations is to try to account for her thought in terms of her biography and almost to play down the originality and brilliance of her thought in those Mm. terms. It's something, something to be very careful of Her life is so fascinating. For example, she gave up academic philosophy, she worked in a factory, um, lots of interesting episodes like this, she went to the Spanish Civil War, to to, to fight in the Spanish Civil War. It can occlude the brilliance of the thought. So the thought itself is very, very important to value, quite apart from her life. In another sense, her life and her thought are one, and they really are one. There's a great biography of, of her written by one of her very close friends, and it shows you this. It shows you what a person she was, how impossible she was, how compelling she was, how brilliant she was, how impractical she was. All these things with Simone Weil, just as they were for Friedrich Nietzsche or Ludwig Wittgenstein, the other thinkers I've written about. These people embodied all these things in their lives and their thought. With Simone Weil, I simply feel... She both lived awe. it, but
1: she also died her ideals. In she the, died in her, her ideals. She, she
2: refused. She, she died in um, Kent. She, she went to a hospital in Kent in the end. She went to a hospital in Middlesex, didn't she? And, she, and then she went to a clinic. She she um, refused to eat any more than what she thought prisoners of war were eating, French prisoners of war were eating in, in, in Nazi Germany. She was very malnourished, and this brought on tuberculosis, uh, illness of the lungs, and she died. And she, you know, It's terrible. And she's buried in, a- in Ashford in Kent. At 34, in the midst of this brilliant period of writing, she died. So this is...
1: And that act of kind of radical empathy, mm-hmm. of solidarity that as she would have seen it, political solidarity, mm. is something that translates in your novel to your Simone, who, mm. who is, you know, doing a PhD like her peers or her other students, but yes. also has this commitment to the world that I found very moving and, mm. and actually kind of redemptive of of all those. No- it does feel like the third novel in, a, in yeah. a trilogy for that reason, for th- I won't ruin the, the end, but um, for the final kind of utopian moment but could you, mm. could you tell a bit about how you went about or what was you, you know, the fascination with, with, um, you know, with the philosopher is, is evident from what you've said but how, wh- what is it about the character, wh- about your Simone that, that, that you found? Yeah, so my
2: Simone, she's uh, doing a PhD in philosophy, she won a scholarship, she's a trans woman, she's trans- transitioned and w- what she's looking for a, is a way of, of leaving power behind, leaving the trappings of power behind. She wants to be someone who decreates herself actively by choosing to live in a particular way. And this is an action we, we, don't, we don't understand as rigid as what, what's motivated this. We hear very little from her herself other than her philosophical and religious musings. There's the characters around her who speculate about her. And ask, uh, they ask themselves about her, her background, about her origins. They're the ones to try and come up in their minds with who she is, what kind of person she is, what, what makes her this someone who's doing a PhD but also working with the homeless. And she's working with a charity, it's based on a real charity in Birmingham. I forget the name of it now actually. It, it was a, a charity that worked with the homeless directly. And I, I saw a very moving documentary about this charity. I used to support this charity you know, once upon a time. And they, they would go and distribute things to the homeless directly. So you go and give people money or food directly And there's something foolhardy and crazy and romantic about this charity, but there's also something unbelievably moving about it. And the person who ran it was a figure in Birmingham who aroused a lot of controversy because people were saying, look, you can't just give people money who are homeless. They're going to spend it on drink. They're going to spend it on drugs. This is not the kind of help these people need. Well, talking autobiographically, I lived for seven years in Manchester in in a very extraordinary house. It's run by a former lecturer of mine And we took in people who had extreme drink and drug problems. They came to live with us so they could remove themselves from the world in which they were exposed to drink and drugs. For example, if they had friends around them who were really into drinks and drugs, then we would give them time out in a dry house. They could spend a few months living with us. No rent, nothing, just join us, come and eat with us. And the person who ran that house was a great friend of mine, David Melling, and he, he was, he was in, what he did, he would turn over his house to all kinds of people. And he was a very welcoming man. You'd get a taxi from town, the taxi driver would come in for a cup of tea and <laughs> end up staying for dinner. <laughs> the roofers came to the roof. One <laughs> of them moved in. He came to live in the house. Because he's a, he was a, a wonderful man, very magnetic and extremely compassionate. So I wanted to pay tribute to him as I, as I do in this novel. as a character called Michael, based on, based on my great friend David. And I wanted this whole novel to be about compassion. And my previous novel is called Nietzsche and the Burbs, which is also about compassion, actually. It's all about compassion. And this novel is a reply to Nietzsche and the Burbs. So both novels are about how should we act, how do we be compassionate. You see someone who is suffering before you, what then should you do? And this is why Simone Weil's thought was particularly useful here. Because Simone Weil um, asked herself about charity, what charity might mean. So this is a novel which is about what charity is. Nietzsche of the Burbs is actually also about that, but it's not often—it's actually not been commented upon in any reviews. It's also about—it's also about charity and what we do. Mm. So this novel is about trying to work out what Simone Veil herself, the real Simone Veil, might have um, uh, might have done in, in contemporary mm. contemporary UK.
1: Which makes it—I mean—it's maybe too simplifying to call it a kind of critique of. The, philosophical te- or the tendency among philosophers, especially ethicists, actually, to live quite unethical lives, or at least to, to comment from the side, the, the, you know, to go back to where you began, mm. hymning the, the power of philosophy, it's that it must compel one to behave in a certain way, right? Or that the ideas... Yeah. Inf- in, and, and that's kind of where you get to here. I have one big and rather self-interested question that, that I may ask, but I might hold it a bit, actually, until, until we really are at the end. So um, are there any questions from anyone else? Here? Cheers. I was just curious about, like, the ease... And oh terrain yeah. in your work? Because mm-hmm. like I
0: remember th- like the burbs, of course. Mm-hmm. Also like the endless lawn. Just yeah. something from the trilogy. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the yeah, the ease, and I was just your like kind of that amorphous space that you create for the characters mm-hmm. that kind of gives them that kind of platform to go on so many of these great digressions.
2: Cheers. Thank you. Yeah. So the Ease is actually a real place. It's it's um there's a lake in Manchester and surrounding woodland, very, very managed woodland. It's called the EES, E-E-S. I think it comes from that word ooze, which is the old word for, for river. I googled
1: EES, and I couldn't find it. Oh, it's real, all it's all real. I found is the, envir- the the engineering and environmental wing of the university. Oh, right, <laughs> no, it it the Online, there
2: used to be stuff. be yeah. a whole website for the EES online. Build, yeah. it, it's, it's managed woodland, but it was still um, it was still kind of um, mysterious. There, there there is in Manchester. It was managed, but it wasn't that managed. So it, it felt... Nice to go there, when I was, when I was a PhD student, I used, to, I used to go there with a friend, with friends, um, and all of us were in these days in life. We're not sure where things were going to go. So um, I, after my PhD, I, you know, I couldn't find any work. I was living on the Dole for years, years and years on the Dole. I was hanging out with other people, a woman, a friend of mine at the time, she'd inherited money from her family, not loads of money, but enough not to have to work. So she didn't, she didn't have anything to do in the daytime. So we'd wander in the ease. And, and, and that's what I wanted to capture in this novel, the idea of wandering that sense of destination, that sense of where it is in your life. The excerpt I read earlier um, commented on the notion of time, that PhD time, as my students experience it, involves an opening something which is something which is indeterminate, which is not project-based. So a project, etymologically, the word project means that which we throw forward. So we throw forward a project, we think, I'm going to do this. In five years' time, I'm going to finish my next novel. That's a project. But actually, on the East... There are no, there's no project. P- projects are impossible. What we find instead is an experience of open space and open time, where time is not project-based. It's not about what you want from the East. It's about where the East sends you. Where you, you know, this is why people who have seen Tarkovsky's film, Stalker, mm. will recognise the East as a ver- my version of Tarkovsky's film, Stalker. So there's time, but also space. So space we can think of as, you know, we, I'm going there, going to the record shops, go and buy some CDs. I like buying CDs. I like record shops. Great. But what I, what, I, what I tend to do in my life now is wonder. I don't like wondering. It makes me melancholy. <laughs> like W.J. Sabal. He's always wondering his novels. No wonder he gets melancholy. Stop wondering. <laughs> go to the record shop, WC Sabal. <laughs> Stay there. <laughs> All your wondering will lead you only into melancholy. So, is that, so the East is that place of wondering, openness without plan, without project. Where you go when you have no idea where it is you're going. And Eat is a place in Manchester, in my novel, um, it's uncapturable and un- unmanageable. So it's a utopia of sorts. There's a lot of stuff about in this novel about management. Management of the university, management of the, uh, of the urban environment of Manchester itself. But here is a place which is, which is unmanageable, which changes constantly, which, which, which brings my characters into a sense of bliss because they can turn their afternoon melancholy They they feel welcomed by the East. They feel they understand the East. They feel, because they're doing their PhDs at All Saints, they feel they can understand what the East actually is. And as as they say, only we can understand this space. No one else would. They would just see a lake and people walking dogs. But we experience this. And that's very much my experience of of being someone who wandered around a lot in, in my 20s and 30s, unemployed. You know, unemployed, with no prospects, no possibility of a job, just wandering about applying for jobs that are the, you know, and having going nowhere with my life. And that's what the East was. It's an attempt to portray that but make it utopian at the same time.
1: Yeah, it becomes a really sort of fertile and productive place too. It I does. mean it's like the Forest of Arden in Shakespeare or something. It's like it's yes. kind of magical place that It's magical. They, yeah. It's yeah. the forest
2: in all Shakespeare. Yeah. It's Lord of the Rings, you know, it's, yeah. it's all yeah. it's Narnia. Yeah. Yeah. It's Narnia. I forgot yeah. to put that line in the bloody novel. I forgot. I forgot this line early on saying, not, the, the E is PhD Narnia. I forgot <laughs> to put it in. And at the end, there's lots of Narnia references, which won't make any sense now, because <laughs> I forgot to put that in early on. But uh, what can you do? What put it you for you the
1: second, second edition. Second yeah, agency.
2: yeah. What can you do?
0: Yeah. Um, so you've talked a lot about the role of philosophy yeah. um, in the books, and you've talked a bit about kind of humour and melancholy, um in all of your books the spurious trilogy and this trilogy there's like lots of kind of references to you know other arts as well like literature and film come up a lot um but i wonder if you talk a bit more about like music in this book oh. and in your works mm. generally i mean like one of the first times i saw you read there was a very funny reference to uh, isaac brock from modest mouse that oh i really yeah. wasn't expecting oh yeah, um that's right. Uh, that's right one of my favorite right. bands actually and yeah. um you know, it's very present in this book. So, drawing on that, like wonderful Manchester mm. music heritage. So, I wonder if you just like
2: talk a bit more about that. Well, well, I was growing up in the suburbs. I write about the suburbs in my novel *Nietzsche and the Burbs. And where I grew up, it, very boring sort of place. Suburb, uh, suburbs often are, and culturally, it's very bland. There's very little that stuck out. But what I found growing up in my teens is I was surrounded by people who were very into music. You go and hang out with people, and they show you they, they can play guitar really well, and they had, they had connoisseurs. Connoisseurs. Um, 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 understanding of particular music genres. So one guy would be a big boogie-woogie piano fan. you think, I'd never even heard of boogie-woogie piano before I went around your house. And you have a whole collection of LPs. And so even in the suburbs, there, there, is, there is culture. Should I even say even in the suburbs? It sounds patronising. But there is culture. It's often in the UK. We talked about the UK before. It's music. <coughs> and growing up in the 80s and the 90s, well, 70s and 80s, really, um, music is one of those areas in life where you were permitted to talk intellectually. So you'd buy the music papers at that time, the New Musical Express, the Melody Maker, and they'd be very intellectual papers. It's unbelievable now, you can't even imagine this, but they, they would review books by Blanchot, the philosopher and, and writer. They, they reviewed Blanchot in the New Musical Express. So these, these papers were, were portals to an intellectual life. So you'd buy the NME on Wednesday. It was really exciting. You'd learn about new music. You'd learn about books. You'd learn about art. And actually, also through the music of that time, you learn about books, you learn about art. So, the music of that period, the, the, all these musicians, when you, you read interviews with them, they would open up things to you. They'd mention a name. And you think, right, I've got to remember that name. And in those days, um, go, I got to get a train into London. I used to go to Compendium Books in Camden. And that's a legendary bookshop, fantastic place. They'd have some of these books, like Bobby William Burroughs, that time J.G. Ballard. These, these are mainstream names now. You can buy them on Amazon really easily. In those days, they were not easy to get hold of, mm. these books, these authors' works. I remember you know, Channel 4 had a, a season of Tarkovsky in 1989. I was watching it, I was absolutely entranced, I was amazed But you couldn't get any information on, on, on Tarkovsky without, you know, in those days, pre-internet. I remember walking through Covent Garden and heard someone mention Tarkovsky. I went and introduced myself <laughs> There's a woman talking to her daughter, uh, uh, like some weird guy. But we actually, we, we sat down at a cafe and we, we talked about Tarkovsky. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. This is pre-internet times, so music was a portal. Music was an opening, and it was, of course, also the music itself. So you listen to um, The Fall, the band The Fall, with Marquis e. Smith, an autodidact, a, a working-class person. He's assembled for himself. He's compiled for himself. He's made a world out of ghost stories, um, horror stories. Uh, Lovecraft is one of these mentions authors he mentions a lot out of um, popular culture. For him, it was rock and roll bands like The Seeds, very primitive, basic rock and roll, um, very expressive and um, vehement rock and roll. It was country. And out of this, he made a world for himself, which he expresses in the lyrics of, of, of The Fall, and it's there also in the music of The Fall. And In Manchester in particular, there was Ian Curtis and the rest of Joy Division, there was Morrissey and the Smiths, each of these people, in each of these bands was a, was a cosmos. It was a world. Mm. And uh, th- in, th- in those days, it was emma- amazingly mysterious. So when I was young, growing up in the suburbs, I went to university open days to find out where I was going to go. And of course, it was Manchester. It was Manchester because of the music, because of the ambience of the place. However, I got there in 1989. And it was bloody Manchester. It was this period where... <laughs> It was awful. Middle class <laughs> students in tie dyes and flares <laughs> and fishermen's hats. So I immediately listened only to classical music and folk music. I, fo- I, I didn't listen to any pop music for another two years. Classical and folk, that was it.
1: But is it a stretch to say that, I mean, one of the, I think, I think you're one of the most musical writers of sentences writing fiction today? The, the, the rhythms of your
2: Oh, rhythms. Books. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I think there's a, I mean, is that, is that something you're conscious of?
2: You well, know, it's all about the rhythm. Yeah. Now, <laughs> ethnologically, the word rhythm in Greek, rhythmos, uh, there's a great linguist called Emile Bonveniste, and he tells us that the word rhythmos in Greek once meant what we call flow in rappers, don't so hip-hop, you know, when rap has flow. It meant a sense of flow. Now, we can understand rhythm today as being like a 4-4 four, four, or a 3-4, something quite uh, metric, something quite um, divided. But the original Greek sense was some kind of flow, a flowing, something river-like. And that's what I want in my prose. I want my readers to be carried away, to be swept away on this river. And that's the idea for me, is rhythm, rhythmos, is um, almost a kind of hypnotism. Mm. Almost kind of hypnotism, where you, it's, it's through repetition, it's through sentence length, it's through use of ellipses, uh, where I'm just trying to, to take the reader off, to carry the reader off. That's what we need. Our world is one wh- which is very rhythmical in the wrong sense. Nietzsche would call it ap- Apollonian, it's divided. It's cut up. You know, it's 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 um it's this 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 metric a beat, regular beat. And what I want is to be carried away. And that's what music's always given me. And that's why I hope to give readers as well.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure we'd all agree that you do. Are there any other questions from the floor?
3: Hi. Um. Thank you very much for a really interesting talk. Um. I feel I should out myself as a humanities PhD student oh, wow. uh, doing That's a PhD in Simo- on Simone Veys. So, wow. <laughs> okay. um, so my my question, um, or I should start that my my research into Simone Veys, um I, I, I find her to be a very kind of contradictory person, um, and you know her her thoughts, her ideas, her writing is so fantastic and cerebral, but a lot of what you read about people's encounters with her as a person on a practical, you know, kind of interactive human level were quite, um, I thought she could be quite abrasive. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of the encounter uh, between her and Simone de Beauvoir mm. um, where she, she basically, like, I'm going to paraphrase, but basically called her fat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um uh, the introduction to Gravity and Grace and certainly at least in the edition I have, um, the person, uh, I can't remember his name, but, um, the person she was living with at the time who, when she was writing her notebooks, uh, has said just kind of she was quite an impossible person to be around in a, you know, personal space way. But I wondered how you've grappled with that kind of personableness or lack thereof That's right. sometimes it's, it's, it's that
2: she has. It's very much the heart of the, of the book is this. Mm. It's how she comes across in ordinary everyday life. Mm. What kind of person she is. Magical, bewitching, seductive, but also someone who um, holds everyone at a distance. Uh, she's a very mysterious character. What matters for her is her thought and her, her relationship to God. She's, mm. she's a mystic. Mm. She's someone who removes herself from social company. She's someone who's awkward. Um, someone difficult in, in all these ways. Yeah, she, she, yeah, that's the thing. So she's someone who's, who's other. But this idea of contradiction you mentioned is really important. In Simone Weil's thought, we have always co- apparent contradictions. And Simone Weil says well, wh- when we get a contradiction of a certain kind, what we should do is contemplate that contradiction. Don't try and solve it. You contemplate it. You contemplate the disjunction between freedom and necessity, between good and evil. And much of her thought is is, is, a, is a working with contradictions I was talking to a, a scholar of um, Simone Weil last week, actually. And it was, I, was saying to her, I was saying to him, how does Simone Weil do it? On the one hand, she's an advocate of Spinoza's thought, who's a, a very much a philosopher of imminence, so no transcendence for Spinoza. And yet, she's also a, a Platonist, who's an advocate of transcendence. How, how to, is, is Simone Weil able to do this? It's, it's quite incredible. But Simone is all about this idea of contradiction, and that's what the novel is all about. When, when the characters see her writing down notes... And her, her book, her notebook is called on the front cover is contradiction. It's all about contradictions. So the whole novel is like that. It's all about contradictions of various kinds between the world we live in now and that which might transcend the world, that which might c- that which might c- call us from beyond the world, between the Manchester of the novel and this utopian space, to ease. So this contradiction is something the novel tries to inhabit. I'd also mention the other thing. We talked about Simone Veil and her amazing spirit of charity. And how she wants to give and give and give. But for my character, some of my characters, which is suspicious, that what Simone Weil wants to do is to obliterate herself, to get rid of herself altogether. and Some of my characters think that what Simone Weil wants is, is death, is to die. She wants she wants death. She courts it. And uh, her, her philosophy, for some of my characters, is modeled on a desire for extinction. And the character who talks in this way is called Valentine. He's modeled on Georges Bataille, who actually knew Simone Weil. So the arguments in the novel recall real conversations that Georges Bataille and Simone Weil had together, where Bataille accused Simone Weil of courting death, of wanting death. So that, for me, is something which, again, I find a very, very important question. If I can mention someone else, uh, a novelist, well, a writer um, whose work is only now coming into print, Susan Taubes, after many years of neglect. Susan Taubes was an intellectual who died age of 41, by her own hand, in 1969, a very close friend of Susan Sontag. And she's a very significant intellectual, a very important writer on Simone Vey. And when I was wrestling with Simone Weil's, Weil's thought, it was through the lens of Susan Tauber's writings on Simone Vey. And Susan Tauber reads Simone Vey as a Gnostic, as a thinker who divides heaven and earth, imminence and transcendence. So for me, the whole novel really was about trying to um, trying to get to grips with Susan Talbot's interpretation of Simone Weil, and to work these ideas out for myself. These ideas are very pressing for me as an individual. So that's the intellectual struggle at the heart of this novel. and All this comes down to this idea of contradiction.
1: I've got time for, for one more, at least, if there is one. Or I, I could ask mine, my self-interested one, which is, I suppose, about over the last six books you've written, mm-hmm. They've done all sorts of things, but one of the things they've done is, 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 is take a kind of satirical, comic, but quite serious look at contemporary academia mm. and the humanities in particular. And I wondered if both within your experience moving from academic philosophy to creative writing, which you now teach, and writing fiction, um, but also within the changes that have occurred within universities in the last decade, whether you are more or less hopeful of the future of the humanities.
2: Well, you know, what can you say? It's all very doomy in the humanities, you know? <laughs> the first novels I wrote, the first three novels, have the a the character based on, on me, called Lars, and a character called uh, W. who's was based on a friend of mine. And we he was were supposed do- to be here. He's supposed and to be here, tonight. He never turns up. You know, he's, he's part, of, part of W's mystique.
1: Leave a chair for him. Yeah, he never, he
2: never actually arrives. Anyway, he's supposed to come last week to Manchester. Didn't come to that either. But when we were working together in philosophy, we, 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 we collaborated a lot on, on our writing together in philosophy. We would tour the UK and we'd go around departments of philosophy which were about to close. So all these departments were about to close. And I wanted to to remember those in my fiction, So uh, to to remember a whole milieu, a whole world of thought. And that's what I tried to do in those first three novels, is to remember Middlesex University, um, Dundee University, other universities. Now, at that time, I never said this in the novels, I couldn't really. My own department where I worked was moved, and get this, it's a philosophy... Art is, is it arts and humanities subject, it was moved into chemical engineering. Right? Just, just, just think about that for a moment. And we were there for 11 years. So I saw all the extremes of the university management. They were trying to force us to teach chemical <laughs> engineering students. They made our students, they made, literally made our students go to chemical engineering um, modules. I mean, Literally. This really, really happened. I went to numerous meetings, many, many meetings about the integration of philosophy in chemical engineering. These things really happen. Now, W, I, I don't think you'll mind me saying this because, yeah, okay, some things I can say, some things I can't. I was the external examiner, which is a position you have in, in UK academia where you oversee the running of many elements of a, of a university degree or, or degrees. I, w- I was the uni- external examiner of his university for philosophy and theology. His university, right? while well, well I was the external examiner, it closed down the entire humanities, the lot. It closed down everything. and All theology went... It was a church college. It had a huge chapel in the middle of it. <laughs> All theology went, then, then 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 everything went. And th- in, in its dying moments, I went to a conference about the humanities at this university. I gave I gave a talk there on the humanities, and th- they closed it next week. They, d- they, d- they didn't tell anybody they're going to do it. And they did. Well, then he, he moved somewhere else, right? He moved to another church college. Same thing happened. So it's it, you know it, 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 it's, re- it's real. And the university I was in. Um, you know, our department's whittled down to nothing. There's only three of us in the end. And we had, we had about we, had, we, were, we were a serious place once upon a time. So I saw what happened, but then there's there's good news too. I left, and eventually philosophy has moved over to the humanities, and now it has. It's a big department. Mm-hmm. So all kinds of weird things happen, but generally things aren't great. You know, things aren't great, unfortunately. So luckily, there are pockets where. Humanity, the love of humanity survives. It survived in the blogosphere for a while. You know, and I used to say to myself, you know, I used to work in humanities. Think, no one here in the humanities really loves these books they read. And I was really relieved to find the blogosphere back in the early two thousands, where people were writing out of passion, writing out of, of love of, of, of philosophy, out of literature. There was a there was a moment o- online, and it was just wonderful. All these people from all walks of life, no matter what their background or education, you know, they were writing about literary things. And films mm. so these things do arise something i'm sure will come along again so th- i hope there's hope yeah, that's the all I can say. Is,
1: yeah i mean i agree i think that's a, a, the only hope one can have is that mm. these questions and these these ways of living will always be central to what it, that's why they're the humanities aren't they? yeah um, well thank you so much lars to end on a semi-hopeful note thanks um, john and for that wonderful thanks reading for and for all your and all your questions too that was a real treat so um Let's thank Lars and do buy a copy of the book and, and have a drink with us and get it signed.
2: Thank you. And thanks Lloyd. Thanks for hosting us. Yeah, thank you, Lloyd. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening. I wish to thank Lars and John for their time to discuss the ideas and intentions of Lars's novel. Visit our website, liberia.io, for news of future events and book recommendations.